Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Friday, March the 10th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and I'm joined today by Jack Horgan-Jones and Cormac McGuinn from our political staff. Hello to you both. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Hugh. Jack, sometimes there's just one item that overshadows the whole political agenda for the week, and that's definitely the case this week. Yes. Uh, You don't even need to tell me what it is. I know already it's the eviction ban and the ending of the eviction ban, um, which has uh, cannibalised the news agenda, really, certainly for the the second half of the week, and I think is going to be a real issue for the government, not just for this week, but for the foreseeable coming weeks and indeed months. And I think it'll leave a long tail all the way through to the next general election. Um, it's actually funny because earlier on, earlier on this week, there was a cabin decision just to give the immediate back backdrop to to what has happened. There was a leaders' meeting on Monday evening, where from which leaked the news that they weren't going to extend the eviction ban. Now, the expectation had been that they were going to do it and throw a few tax sweeteners, uh, tweak a little, uh, tweak some of the terms to make it slightly better for landlords and extend it on for another few few months. So it was a bit of a a shock reversal, as we say in the news business. And uh, that was signed off on by cabinet on Tuesday. There's a bunch of things coming in behind it, some of which are in the finest traditions of government already announced policies, uh, which they're now trying to spin as mitigations. And uh, one policy, which is kind of brand new, uh, just to briefly cover off what that is, it's kind of a a combination of two policies, one of which means that the uh, that if you're being evicted, uh, you will have first refusal to buy the home that you're being evicted from. Uh, the second part of it is if you don't have the money to buy the home, as I'd imagine most people won't, you'll be uh, able to avail of what they're calling a backstop option, whereby an approved housing body or a local authority will come in and try and buy the house and you'll become a, a cost rental tenant uh, on the same or better terms. Um, I kind of thought the story might peter out after this uh, during the middle of the week, but what has happened... Rather than the story substantially moving on or evolving, um, it's just become this maelstrom of uh, human interest stories and uh, a huge amount of media attention on the the personal side of this. And there are an awful lot of very affecting personal stories out there of people who are facing into, you know, uh, some of the worst uncertainties that can be imagined. You know, families saying that they are they have nowhere to go either after 1st of April or some date thereafter because they're in receipt of uh, an eviction notice. And they're being catapulted into this um, this terrible rental market that we have at the moment where you have the, the, the dual threats of incredibly high costs of rental if you're lucky enough to find somewhere to live and a, a remarkably low level of rental properties. So a near impossible situation where you're traipsing around, presumably trying to look after your kids and work at the same time, traipsing around, trying to identify a house. Um, and that has generated a huge welterweight of pressure for the government. And they are under, as I say, enormous pressure. And the the, the opposition has been, uh, just has just snatched that ball and, and ran with it. And I think we'll be doing so for the next little while, because even though we have the, uh, the, the break, in inverted commas, of, of Patrick's Week, where there's no cabinet and there's no doll sitting and ministers are off to various far-flung parts of the world, which should alleviate the pressure a little bit, 
When they come back, Sinn Féin has indicated that they're going to put down a motion uh, on this issue. We don't, we won't have the wording of that probably until the middle of next week, but it's designed to try and make government backbenchers extraordinarily uncomfortable and to kind of crystallise the political point that the, the opposition is making even more so, which is that, you know, this is a cruel and indifferent decision by the government and maybe even try and peel off a couple of backbenchers. They'll obviously have their sights set on Nessa Harrigan, the Green Dublin Central TD, who has been a vociferous critic of this decision. Um, whether that's successful or not, uh, I'm kind of sceptical. I think that, you know, I think maybe NASA might, might vote against it, but I'd be surprised if anyone else did. Um, and even if they do, I suspect the government will have enough uh, backing from backbenchers to, that the motion doesn't pass. But once that is off the agenda, then you have the eviction ban itself coming in. And then you have more human interest stories. You've got data releases. You have uh, homeless organizations talking about the pressure they're coming under. And that just goes on for weeks Weeks and weeks and weeks. So you have this thing bleeding all the way through into probably early summer. And at the bottom of it, every time one of these stories comes up, the uh, opposition is going to turn around and say, rightly or wrongly, simplistically or otherwise, and people will have a variation of views on that, they will be able to say, the government did this. They ended the eviction ban. This is their fault. And that is that is anathema to, to the government because it's a very easily understood political attack line that I think will translate and we'll just see how that plays out. Maybe we'll get into a discussion on how that might play out in polling. Um, I have a few theories on that. Uh, but it's going to be, I think it's going to be a thing for the next little while. Much much contrary to my diagnosis earlier on this week that it was going to fall off the news agenda. So shows how much I know. <laughs> so, uh, so Cormac, I don't want to make light at all of the, the really harrowing personal stories which Jack referenced there, which we uh, which we heard over the course of the week. And there's probably more more coming at us in the in the weeks to come. But th- this does remind me of that uh, that moment in Yes Minister, where the minister is told that he has done something terribly brave. The the implication being that doing something brave is the most politically stupid thing you could possibly do. Did the government do something brave here this week in, the, in those terms? I mean, the motivation for this decision, as Jack was saying, the general expectation was that the eviction ban would be extended. But the motivation seems to be driven by the huge fear in government that if they don't end the eviction ban now, it's storing up problems for the future in terms of landlords fleeing the market and reducing supply in an already tight situation. As we know, we've had a housing crisis in this country for more than a decade. I mean, it actually, the, the TV show, uh, quite nerdily, that it reminded me of in terms of the actual decision-making uh, would be Star Trek and the famous Spock quote, uh, logic clearly dictates that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And it, it seems to be the, the motivation underpinning what the government has decided to do. But the problem with hard cold logic is that it, it can appear callous, you know, it's on such an emotional subject where we have seen during the week, of course, you know, the, the personal stories of people who fear that they're they're going to be turfed out of their homes in the, in the coming weeks. There's no way to, to combat against that. You know, it's just bad publicity that the government is going to have to swallow for, as Jack says, weeks, probably months, and possibly leading up to the next general election. I mean, the, the counterpoint to that would be, you know, what are they supposed to do? Is it their their point would be that you know, okay, we could extend it to the rest of the year, but who's gonna who's gonna end the eviction ban in December around Christmas? You know, you're extending it further than that. Again, there's the supply issues coming down the track. You know, the overarching solution, which they have of course cited, is we need to increase supply. Uh, the opposition have been criticising them for not doing this during the time that the eviction ban was in place, to which the government, I suppose, would respond, well, if there was a silver silver bullet for, for increasing supply, we would have done it 10 years ago, you know. So it's just this intractable 
housing crisis, but it is it's probably the sharp end. It's the most acute end where where people in vulnerable situations actually end up losing their homes. So, Jack, there is a real live current debate and a lot of really quite respected figures in this in this area of policy who say that, you know, that rent freezes and eviction bans are very crude instruments and they have all kinds of unintended consequences in the medium and the long term for a market. And they point to, you know, real examples of that uh, in, in other countries where the outcomes haven't been good. But those seem very abstract when set beside the kind of personal stories that you're talking about. I mean, I do wonder, one of the... One of the points here, that the, the threat which Cormac mentioned there of the departure of landlords from the market. There's a letter in the Irish Times today, and actually this point was made by Richard Boyd Barrett in the podcast on, on Wednesday, that it's not as if they're fleeing the country and taking their houses with them. They can't do that. Those, uh, those dwellings remain in the market. Uh, they may become uh, homes that are sold as opposed to homes that are rented, but that in turn has a knock-on effect. So you, some people say that this, this fear, this threat of the departure of the, the small private landlord is overstated in terms of its impact on on the overall housing crisis in the housing market. They do say that. Um, I mean, I'm not really an authority on uh, residential uh, tenancies market data, so I mean, I can't profess any unique insight into into whether it's real or not. Like there was some some data given to the cabinet on uh, on Tuesday. They cited a, a Sherry Fitzgerald report. Um, which looked at the fourth quarter of last year, um, and it was suggested to, to ministers uh, that approximately uh, twenty one thousand property transactions last year involved uh, investors selling their property, with just seven and a half thousand of those bought by investors, i.e., net loss of thirteen and a half thousand to the existing rental stock. So, if you take that, you know the the homeless figures at the moment um, are eleven thousand and something. Uh, obviously, if you had kept all of those uh, 13,500 in the rental stock uh, and they became vacant, then you could accommodate everyone. That's a very crude way of looking at it. There was also a, a Society of Chartered Surveys of Ireland report that they looked at where um, it was said that the agents who, who conducted this on behalf of SCSI believed that 40% of sales instructions in Q4 2022 were from landlords selling their investment property. And this does play into you know the wider theme that has been going on for a little while. And I think that our colleague Cliff Taylor wrote about a little bit last year, he did a deep dive into the Residential Tenancies Board data and did come up with the conclusion that there was an awful lot of, of people leaving the market. But they might be leaving for other reasons. They might be leaving. I mean, some people have said that they might be you know, making an analysis that they have a certain amount of gains now because of the appreciation of, of, of property over the last 10 years or so. So they've decided to cash in. They've done their work. Um, they, I've, I've even seen it suggested that people think that the conditions for landlords are unlikely to get much better. So now is the time to get out before... I mean, among other things, a Sinn Féin government might come in that would be even less sympathetic to them. So it can be a whole range of factors. It can be, but I suppose that if 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 these sales end up in an eviction, which my understanding is they tend to, because the underlying logic that the landlord would employ is that whatever tenancy exists within uh, the property that they own at the moment is probably bounded by RPZ rules and has been likely for a number of years. So the the rent increases they have been able to achieve have left them at a kind of dogleg to the the open market rent price that they can achieve at the moment. Therefore, if they sell the property with a with a vacant possession to another investor, 
that investor can come in and remark the 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 rental to the 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 open market price at the moment and get a higher rent and therefore will pay them a higher a higher price when they're buying the um the property so you may replicate a you may replicate a tenancy you know someone may come in and may remain as a rental property but it'll it'll be and this is where the policy problem becomes particularly acute it'll be at like a higher level of rent and and so therefore you know it'll become less affordable to people in the round, um, like as I say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an authority on how many on on the exact structure of the rental market, but like certainly the the political problem that they're facing here is uh, that this all looks very much like prioritizing the interests of landlords slash the market overall, and that's what they that's what they would emphasize here. They would say our concern is for the structure of the market and the sustainability of the market, and not storing up longer term problems for the future but it looks like prioritizing the interests of landlords and the markets over tenants who are obviously a very sympathetic and growing class of people we should remember that as well that like there's there's underlying changes at work to the to the structure of of the Irish housing market which means there's more and more people renting they're doing so at ages where you know they might traditionally have been suspected to or expected rather to to transition into becoming property markets so it's becoming a more politically important class of person as well you know so the measures which have been announced or re-announced, as Jack said uh, earlier on, Cormac, um, and some of these measures have been implemented for a while. Our lead story in today's newspaper points out that they've been pretty ineffective, some of these measures to try and, you know, purchase um, properties which were being sold with, with, with tenants in them so that the tenants could keep living with them. They're terribly, you know, ridiculously, you know, low take up. So I'm sure that people don't have a lot of hope. Um, based on that experience so far, that those are going to ameliorate the situation to any great extent. I do wonder, looking at the government's behaviour this week, this kind of out of the blue um, or relatively out of the blue announcement, these kinds of this kind of scrambling around for mitigating things. They should have been planning this months ago if they were going to do it. It doesn't feel like they were, though. It doesn't feel like they were. I mean, of the measures listed, there's a lot. There was a lot of talk of of additional purchases with tenants in situ, and uh, you know, additional emergency accommodation that was brought on stream in recent months. They would have been doing that anyway. As Jack mentioned, the one kind of twin pronged uh, policy that that is relatively new. They're still working on it. They're working out the details of it. It will be three months probably before the summer recess is what they're hoping that they'll they'll get that in. Even within government, questions were raised about why. They were lifting the ban at a time when they didn't have the the mitigating measures uh, that they're proposing completely developed and signed off on. And then, as our lead story shows today, even the existing measures like the tenant in situ purchases, you know, you're getting a handful of properties being bought where the where the tenants are still being kept in place. So it's even that is not working. Leo Varadkar was talking about needing to ramp that up and accelerate that yesterday, but it doesn't give you great faith that the the new policies, this idea that the tenant will get a first refusal on an opportunity to purchase will will have much of an impact. Sure, they're in theory going to get some help with that, with the government's shared equity scheme in terms of affording the purchase, but I can't foresee any situation where any level of scale will exist in terms of tenants actually buying the properties before they're evicted, just because, you know... People aren't renting because they they really want to. They'd be in their own homes that they'd have purchased if they had the choice. So, you know, clearly the majority of people are 
not yet in a position to buy if they're still renting. So how, how is that really going to help the idea of, of local authorities and approved housing bodies buying the, the homes and then offering them a, a cost rental model might might work a bit better. But as we've seen from the tenant and search purchases, you know, the numbers haven't been there at scale. So I, I think these were, they're, they're not necessarily bad ideas, but they're, they're not going to be a solution and they're not going to fix the immediate problem of people being evicted from their homes in, in just about three or four weeks time. Jack, is this a particularly vivid symptom of perhaps a broader problem, this inability to look around corners on part of the government or perhaps even of the of, of the state as a whole? I think of the, uh, you know, the complete, you know, crisis of the asylum system uh, in the last couple of months, which, I mean, obviously it was under unprecedented pressure, but there had been, you know, projections of the kind of numbers that were going to come in. And so, it, and it still seemed to come as uh, as a shock to those who were charged with dealing with it. And we heard about the department being overburdened. I look at other things. I look at even things like the the current problem with drones over Dublin airport, shutting it down. And there's processes that need to be gone through and things that need to be done and they seem to be slow and they seem to have been slow getting off the ground there seems to be a a bureaucracy issue Stephen Collins has a column in today's Irish Times which is about um, wind wind technology wind farms offshore wind farms in particular which which are going to be a vital part of any concerted uh, uh, climate action he's talking about how slow it's been that we're missing the boat that um, slow planning processes inefficient bureaucracy mean that we're lagging behind other European countries and we and we may lose out and this just seems in a way a symptom again of the fact that the state which has taken on very very large projects over the last few years and its expenditure has increased enormously that it sometimes appears not to be able to deal with the scale of the projects which it has taken on and it's falling short and failing i think that's true and i, I get that impression at times as well and i think that you know we need to Perhaps take a step back and say probably that, you know, similar countries, let's call it for the sake of argument, advanced Western democracies, liberal democracies, whatever, they, they kind of are seized uh, by a sense of inertia at scale when it comes to, to long-term problem uh, solving or planning for, for long-term um, problems. And, and part of that is just kind of the, the, the political economy of, of decision-making and um, and probably the media have to put their hands up as well to an extent that like there's always a, a sense of short termism uh, and a focus on on the 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 fire that's in the living room as opposed to you know fixing the roof and uh, that's why things that are important but not pressing perhaps get um get get less attention uh, but it's something to be concerned about i think in addition to all the all the things that you've mentioned there from migration flows, planning for migration flows uh, to, to drones at, at Dublin Airport. Having a, a, a good structure, a good strategy uh, in place that can respond and react to these things, um, whether that be, you know, the kind of legislative flexibility or just the kind of boots on the ground capacity to react is really important because the, the state has to get much better at planning uh, for these long-term challenges. And there's two in particular I'd pick out and, and they kind of bubble up when you read like, you know, the um, the, the, the long-term uh, economic projections and things you need to be worried about over the next 10 or 15 years that get produced around the budget. Uh, and then they fade away again <laughs> until next year when they say, oh, you know, you should you should really still be concerned about these things. Things like climate. 
So uh, obviously climate is, is a big part of the current kind of discourse. Um, but like it's a huge and expensive uh, challenge that needs to be provided for, not in, in one government cycle, but in, in multi-decade cycles. And uh, the, the change in demographics of the country as well and how we, how we provide care to older people um, or just people who are uh, you know, going, to, going to live longer, but perhaps in a state of, of, of diminished health and capacity and how you reform the uh, how you reform the, the the provision of healthcare services and move away from you know co living spaces is not the word I'm looking for but um uh, you know like nursing homes and and providing care in hospital settings to more community focused ones and and there are long term strategies on this and like you could say that that Slauncher care was was a great triumph of kind of bipartisan political deal making in Ireland but like isn't it kind of coming off the rails? Like, where's the implementation on that? Like, and people say that there should be a Slaunch Care for Housing. And I think that's a good idea. Like, if you could achieve a broad strokes framework that had broad political consensus and buy-in and, and it was passed from government to government to be kind of implemented perhaps along different lines and different parts given different emphasis depending on the political outlook of that government. I think that, you know, you could go some ways down the road to, to addressing what is a kind of chron- chronic, multi-dimensional, long time frame problem. But like, can the political system grapple with that? Can can it escape that political economy that does exist? Can we in the media step back from writing about the big crisis of the day and saying something must be done and running around the place and, and, and perhaps emphasising more of these, these longer term uh, challenges? Uh, you know, remains to be seen, as they say, when they can't think of a good final line to a piece. <laughs> Those are very big questions indeed. We're going to turn to a couple more of them in a sec. But first, we're going to take this brief break before we do. Just to remind you that if you are not already a subscriber to irishtimes.com, may I gently encourage you to take the plunge and go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for a year at a very, very reasonable rate to get all our journalism uh, across irishtimes.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And you're very welcome back. Uh, Jack and Cormac are still here. Um, Cormac, Jack was talking before the break about you know, big challenges, the state not meeting them, climate change in, in particular, or having difficulty meeting them. This question of congestion charges this week, uh, which sort of came out of left field, I wasn't I wasn't sure what forefront part of, alongside a proposal which has been rejected to make urban or may, maybe all public transport uh, free. Um, these are sort of, to be honest, without daring ourselves down too much, these are the kind of ideas that we airily toss around in podcasts, but I'd expect something a little bit more joined up and concrete from government at this stage. Yeah, I mean, my my first reaction to that congestion charge uh, suggestion was you'd want to be mad to drive into Dublin city centre or Galway city centre or any anywhere else, regardless of whether there's a congestion charge or not. If if you try to cross the Liffey in Dublin 
add 45 minutes to your journey that's guaranteed you know um but but that is because lots of people are doing it i suppose it is yeah but the solution to all of this uh whether it's the free public transport debate or the the congestion charge and traffic in dublin is better public transport uh you know it's I, I live in North County, Dublin, just beyond the Dart Line. Uh, so, you know, there's a there's a train every 40, half an hour, 40 minutes in the morning. It's only every hour in the evening going the other way. You know, if, if you want a bus from where I live, it's two buses. You know, uh, I come from the town of Swords, uh, which there has been talk of a metro link from for the last, since at least 2002 or so. You know, I, I reported as a young reporter in, in the local newspapers back in 2006. It still hasn't happened. It's not looking like it's going to happen for another another decade or so. Yes, you could talk about congestion charges, but there is, there is in fairness, a necessity for people to use their cars to, to get into the city. And none of these issues, none of the problems of traffic or public transport use is going to be solved until there's better public transport. And I know they, they talk about bus connects and, and still talking about the metro, but again, like we were just discussing there in terms of planning for things, these things take so long, so long, decades. Decades is the is the time scale of how long takes things get done in Ireland, which is just it's just extraordinary. But um yeah, the free public transport debate is quite interesting. Obviously, people before profit have been calling for this for, for years. And uh, now we have Eamon Ryan, uh, Green Party leader, and the, the National Transport Authority essentially coming out and saying, well, if, if you do that, people will use it too much and they'll be using it for unnecessary journeys. They might be right, uh, but ultimately the solution to the climate change issue is is to get more people onto buses and trains. So, you know, any way that can incentivize this is, is worth doing. Certainly, I think a successful policy that was introduced last year was to reduce the the public transport fares uh they, they'll make themselves quite popular if they can if they can reduce them further again in the in the upcoming budget and i i, I suspect we'll, we'll see them going down that road rather than uh, making it completely free to use buses and trains yeah personally i think the free transport debate is an interesting one but actually it, as, as cormac says it's a most better use of money jack to um to to reduce fares and to encourage people that way and there is an argument i think quite a strong one for not getting rid of fares entirely in 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 an irish context but the real kicker here isn't it is that it's much easier to do a carrot than to do a stick um but it to have any chance of achieving these objectives you need a stick and i should say you know i you know i live you know comfortably close to the city center of dublin so i'm not faced with those kind of those kind of incredibly difficult commuting decisions which other people have to make but i do see long strings of cars with one person in each of them driving into town in the morning and driving out in the afternoon and also the city center of dublin is pockmarked by huge surface car parks and uh, particularly car parking for people employed by the state i seem to remember years ago there was a fascinating moment when the government tried to introduce some kind of uh, a penalty or a levy on uh, civil servants who had car parking spaces and strangely it never happened yeah yes that that is true and and again that's something that's kind of conjured up from time to time that they're gonna they're gonna get rid of all the public sector car parks and strangely you're right things seems to slide off the agenda um like both of these issues right um the the congestion charges and the free rail transport or bus transport or reduced uh, transport kind of get to the core of what I think is actually a pretty important fault line running through the the coalition, um, which is that broad strokes environmental, and we're not even talking about emissions base, but to do with the built environment and public transport and the modal shift that, that uh, the Greens have kind of as a central part of their policy platform. Um, are going to become, I think, in the latter half of this government, uh, much more divisive and much more politically problematic. And you see that with how quickly 
the the very charged debate within the coalition took off last Sunday into Monday when there was this story in the in the Business Post and then we followed up on it uh, in our splash on, on Monday about the possibility of congestion charges and the kind of near panic that ran around people who work in government trying to kind of put manners on this story and say, oh, look, you know, yeah, we're going to be looking at this demand management strategy, but don't worry, it's it's a ways off yet. It's the end of this year. And yeah, I suppose things like congestion charges, um, they are on the table of options. But I mean, this is just modelling. I wouldn't worry about it too much. This is just stuff that's been drawn up by the National Transport Authority. Like, you know, this is not policy. Modelling is not policy. Don't worry. And it's all very much far away. Um, that has kind of been the traditional way of addressing environmental uh, or emissions or climate policy in Ireland, which is when it gets politically difficult, back away from it and say, don't worry, it's not going to come come for ages. But the the political reality that is contained within the structure of this government is that it should at least bring those choices much closer and actually have them as active policy decisions at some point in the next couple of years. Now, who knows, they may back away from that, but I don't think that the Greens are so are minded to do so. Um, and as and when that happens, you see how it crystallises divisions within government and divisions within wider society, you know, rural, urban, commuter who lives, uh, you know, on the outer stretch of the commuter belt versus someone who lives in the, the well-heeled inner suburbs like you, Hugh. <laughs> and 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 this is, this is something that I think they need to, to be aware of because these kind of issues have not kind of caused big stumbles before, but they've definitely caused wobbles. Like, so the turf issue, right? Um, the, uh, the, the setting of, of emission ceilings for every sector was a, was a big policy and it, and it wasn't a wobble. It was, it was a big, it was a big challenge within the government, but they got around it. But like, it shows that, I mean, even, even the, remember the, the cheese factory, the cheese plant, the Glambia one that caused eruptions back in 2021. It just shows that this is always latent. There, there's always this latent capacity within the government to kind of fall out with each other and fall out with each other quite, quite nastily and quite angry. And they've managed to to keep a lid on it um, for the time being. But one of my kind of evergreen political takes is that at any point, really, at any point between now and the end of the government, something like this could emerge that, you know, forces people into the trenches and, um, you know, no one will resile from their position and it could become a, a kind of significantly destabilizing, perhaps even a coalition threatening event. Well, it'd be an interesting sign of the times, I think, if finally climate change, which many people believe is the existential challenge of our times, actually brought down an Irish government. You know, that would be a, that would be a signifier in its own right. We are going to leave it there for today. But first, we always like to ask our participants in this Friday podcast to point to an article published during the week in the Irish Times that we'd like to draw readers and listeners' attention to. Cormac, what have you been reading? It almost went under the radar because of the big row over the eviction ban, but there was a very significant announcement for government on Wednesday morning, which is that we, we could be having as many as three referendums later this year on the, the whole uh, gender equality issue. As, as everyone knows, our, our constitution was written by uh, Eamon de Valera, who was, who was not exactly a, a radical uh, in terms of uh, 
progressive issues and all of that in uh, 1937. And Kitty Holland wrote about wrote about the, these referendums there on, on Wednesday and, and kind of did a very good uh, explanation of what's in the current constitution and, uh, you know, why the government believes that it, it needs to be changed. Now, the, the one that everyone knows about is the uh, now infamous uh, article in the constitution that talks about uh, rec- recognising uh, a woman's life within the home and uh, how the state should be endeavouring to ensure that uh, nothing uh, in terms of obligations to have to work gets in the way of, of duties in the home. This provision would seem to be the one that'd be easiest to get rid of. It's 100 years out of, out of date at this point, you know. But there are potential minefields in, in this in this uh, plans for referendums as well. I mean, there, there's a sp- specific uh, recognition of the family being, you know, at the centre of Irish society and marriage being at the centre of family uh, that, that we're looking at, that the government is looking at, at trying to change as well, uh, which could open up uh, quite a quite a big debate into whole other areas. And then there's the issue of how uh, people there's equi- people are deemed equal under the constitution, but there's no specific recognition of of gender equality or or discrimination. And that's an, another area that might form the basis of a referendum. So uh, you know they're looking at November for for this, so we can expect months of debate, uh, which is always good for business and uh, political journalism as well. And there's no doubt at all that we'll be discussing that further in podcasts to come, hopefully podcasts that are not so obviously manal-ish as, as the one we have here today. We've got our own issues in these areas, I think, to address structurally in the media and in the, in the Irish Times as well. Jack, what were you reading? So our colleague Fiona Redden had a very interesting, uh, very long, uh, very detailed piece in Tuesday's paper about which was titled why does ireland have europe's most expensive housing market and and at its core had this piece of eurostat uh research looking at on a comparative basis you know how much how or first of all how expensive housing is uh whether purchasing or renting across the across of europe and then how affordable it is and and it reached i mean to 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 talk about this piece in in a couple of lines will always uh, really kind of, you know, make it much more simple than it is. But it, it kind of reached the conclusion uh, and supported by the research that like Ireland is extremely expensive, the most expensive in Europe, but that there's a disconnect between that and the affordability issue. Um, and it suggested, and I would I would also suggest people should read it themselves, it suggested that like while extremely expensive um, for significant swathes of the, of the population, the affordability issue is not quite um, as, as acute as you might as you might think, given how expensive it is. And it just it, it kind of reframed my thinking in a lot of ways on on the the housing market and the um the the politics of housing and that played then into into the debate about evictions this week because obviously if you're on a low income or if you don't have a good secure tenure uh, then you know the and, and particularly if those two things intersect then an expensive housing market is an enormous problem for you uh, whereas if you have decent tenure and you have decent income then you can afford how expensive it is. Um, so, like, I think that the the defining line of Irish politics, probably in the, the medium term, is security of tenure and and whether you're a, a renter or a buyer and whether you can afford your housing. Um, and it just made me think that like there's probably a, a large group of people out there who are secure, and how will that interact with um, uh, the the rise of of Sinn Fein who have kind of built their house, if you pardon the pun around uh, converting people to being supporters of, of their party based on their critique of, of the housing market. And I just wonder whether 
you know, there might be a, a kind of ceiling on uh, the number of voters who are open to that argument and whether everyone else, unfortunately, has more of a kind of I'm, I'm all right, Jack, kind of approach to this. I'm OK. I'm an insider. That's fine. And I think we'll, we might see that theory tested over the next little while because we have this really uh, clear debate on the eviction ban in, into which a whole load of other things are going to become burdened. But like whether Sinn Féin make further gains off the back of that, I think will be really instructive and interesting and whether they can kind of reverse that plateau and slight decline that they're in at the moment and, and whether, you know, an enhanced or renewed saliency for housing is something that can improve their fortunes even more so or whether they stay at that level, notwithstanding an increased public focus on the housing issue again, I think will be really interesting and, and Fiona's piece just kind of, you know, as I say, kind of reframed and reset a lot of my thinking on that. So I highly recommend it. I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, and especially then when we get to the sharp end, we start looking at, you know, campaign policies and, and things like that in the run up, in the run up to election and people start measuring that against their own self interest, essentially, I suppose. By the way, Jack, do you always kind of get a little free song when people say, I'm all right, Jack? Yeah, I feel, yeah, I feel, <laughs> it's a microaggression. <laughs> uh, my choice is uh, it is Oscar weekend um, this weekend the Oscars are on Sunday night they are uh, by common consent the most Irish Oscars ever with a kind of generous uh, way of defining it I think you can get up to about 14 nominations or so which is really pretty extraordinary there's a piece there'll be lots of coverage over the course of the weekend I should say but there's a piece in in today Friday's uh, Irish Times by, by Connor Coppolis who writes about Paul Mescal who is nominated for uh, the film After Sun and it's a good piece by Connor, who's one of our younger journalists, about the way he reacted to the film as a depiction of of male depression and male self-harm, which it does in quite a subtle, interesting kind of a way, which he could relate to with, with people who knew in his own life as well. So it's a very thoughtful, very nice piece. He hopes that Paul Mescal will win. I'm telling you here, if you're going to the bookies, don't put your money on Paul Mescal. He's not going to win. But uh, all will be revealed on Sunday night. We will leave it there. Thanks very much to our producer, Aideen Finnegan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. And thanks, of course, also to Jack and to Cormac. We're going to be back with you very soon next week, but until then, have a great weekend. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.